If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm, the second Psalm. And there's no children's church this morning since we want the children in here. And we have busy bags. There are blue bags out in the narthex if you uh, think your child could benefit from having something to do during the sermon. Psalm 2. We're taking a break from our uh, series through the Philippians. We'll be back at it in a couple of weeks. This morning, we're going to be looking at the second Psalm. Out of respect for God's word, would you please stand? For the reading of God's word. This is God's holy word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, would you open our eyes to your majesty, to your transcendence, and to your glory that is over all things, that is over every nation. And would you make Jesus, your son, the king, stand brightly in our minds, and would we, would we kneel in honor and in awe of him, the great suffering king, who saved us from our sin. So bless us now as we read your word, as we study it. Would you encourage us and draw us near? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Psalm 2, as you can tell, is a psalm of kingship. It's a psalm about the Lord ruling and reigning as a king. There's four main parts to this psalm, and each part has three verses. We're going to see... In the first three verses, the raging of the nations. The second section, verses 4 through 6, the wrath of the Lord. The third section is the reign of the king from 7 to 9. And then the last three verses, verse 10 through 12, the warning that we all must heed. You know, as I was studying this psalm, I was just struck with how much danger there is in this psalm, how much there is to be hidden from, to find refuge from. The first danger we see in Psalm 2 is the raging of the nations, the chaos, the tumult, the war, and the fighting that we see in the nations when they set themselves against the Lord. The second danger we see is the wrath of God against these nations, the wrath of God against unbelief 
against idolatry and against hatred of God. And therefore, where do we look? What is our hope? Where do we run? Where do we find refuge? The answer the psalm gives us is that our only hope of safety, our only hope of of refuge from the raging of the nations on one side and from the wrath of God on the other is under the protective reign of King Jesus. We must find our protection under the reign of King Jesus. So as we're reading this psalm, I want you to think in your mind, where are you hiding? Where are you finding refuge today from the tumult in, that we see in the world, the chaos, the fighting, the raging of the nations, and also from the wrath of God? What are you looking to to find safety? One of the most, I think, stark biblical images of God's people finding refuge in the midst of these two things is when they are leaving Egypt, when Moses is leading God's people out of Egypt. Right On one side, they have the raging of the nations. They have the rage of Pharaoh, the fury of Pharaoh, who would not let God's people go. And even when the final plague hit, all the firstborn are struck down in all of Egypt, He lets them go reluctantly, but then he chases after them into the Red Sea. So Pharaoh is this picture of the raging of the nations against God, against his anointed. And then what is the Red Sea? The Red Sea is this picture of the the people's salvation, but also the wrath of God pouring down upon Pharaoh and his army. And in that scene, in that salvation scene where do they see the protective reign of jesus well we see it at at passover right the last plague when all the firstborn of egypt are killed and those who have and those who have the protective blood of the lamb over their doorposts they're saved the angel of death passes over that's where they find their salvation So in the same way that this psalm is getting us to look at those two things, danger on one side, danger on the other, and the pathway forward of refuge. So first let's look at the first three verses of Psalm 2, the raging of the nations. Why did the nations rage, the psalmist asks, and the peoples plot in vain? And further explaining that, he says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let's cast away their cords from us. What this is a picture of is basically God's creation throwing a temper tantrum, right? Assembling together noisily, angrily against God. And we, we know this, this was prophesied in the garden. If you remember when when the curses, God gives the curses to the woman and to the serpent and to the man. To the serpent, God says, I will put enmity, anger and hatred and war between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He'll bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel, obviously pointing to Christ our Savior who would die for our sins. But he's saying, The nations are always going to be fighting against God's people. They're always going to be fighting against, led by Satan, against the church. That's why I read for you Revelation 12. If you'd go back there, keep your finger on Psalm 2, but go to Revelation, end of your Bible, 
and go to chapter 12. This is what I read earlier. There's this symbolic, much of Revelation is symbolic, but what you see in chapter 12 is the, a woman and a dragon. Now the woman is, is representative of God's people, of God's people from Old Testament to New, from, from Israel to the church age. And it, we see in the first several verses of chapter 12 that she's giving birth to a male child. And how is that male child described in verse 5? One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Rod of iron, he is to rule over them. We're, 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 verse 9 of, of Psalm 2 says the same thing. It's pointing to Jesus. that He will rule over the nations. And we see that the church is in the midst of this warfare. But that through Jesus, we conquer. If you go to verse 11 of, of Revelation 12, and they have conquered him, how? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. We see that there's this going to be, and so just so you know, we're living in chapter 12 of Revelation right now. This is where the church age is right now. Satan continues to fight against God's people. We are in the wilderness. We are in the wilderness looking for nourishment, finding nourishment, and knowing that Satan's time is short. That's, that's, the, that's the age we're in right now. We're waiting on our king to return. But until then, there's this warfare. There's, the nations are raging. They're saying, let us bur- burst their bonds apart. What does that mean? The nations in, chapter, in verse 3 of Psalm 2, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. What are those cords? What are those bonds? Well, they're, they're the bonds of creational love and obligation God has put on all of creation. See, humanity, men and women, we were made on earth to mirror God's rule in heaven. Right? We were to be his subjects and to rule and have dominion. These, this was love and obligation that he gave us. And a good example of this is, if you have children, if you've raised children, you want them to respect your authority. Not because you're this tyrant, but because your authority over them is good for them. It's good to give them boundaries. It's good to teach them and, and to show them love. And, and rejecting the authority of your parents also forfeits the protection of your home. And so in the same way, these nations are raging, they're fighting against God, they're breaking his authority, and they're at war with him. It says in verse 1 that they plot in vain. That word plot is the same word for meditate that we see in Psalm 1. If you go back to Psalm 1 and look at verse 2, and this is the picture of a righteous man. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and and night. So where the righteous man is meditating on the law of the Lord, the raging nations are meditating on how to take out God, how to rage war against him. So what are you meditating on today? What consumes your mind today and this week? Are we meditating on the law of the Lord? Are we meditating on God or are we meditating on the raging of this world? that we see, this chaos around us. 
Well, what is God's response? This brings us to our second point, verses four through six. Well, how does God respond to this raging of the nations? He says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Let's not overlook that first phrase. He who sits in the heavens. What is that communicating? That God is over it all. He is transcendent. He is the king of kings. He is supreme. And he's looking down from his throne that cannot be toppled. It cannot be taken out. It cannot be rejected. It cannot be overcome. God is great and he is over and he is transcendent. Sometimes we think that the world we see is out of control. It's out of God's control. That we see the world, we see, we see warfare, we see terrorism, and we think this is all happening without God's input. That God's not the one ruling and reigning. And it, and it makes us, we lose our sanity in one sense. Michael Horton, in his book, Recovering Our Sanity, he says, the real world is the one in which the triune God is the central character in nature and history. And the illusion is that we're in charge. The illusion is that we're in charge and it's autonomy that is the myth. And the sooner we raise our eyes to heaven, the sooner our sanity will be restored. The sooner we raise our eyes to heaven, the sooner our sanity will be restored. You see, friends, the greatest lie is that we are in ultimate control of our lives. When really... We're completely dependent upon God. We think we're in total control, but we're really actually dependent. In the book of Daniel, a great example of this, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he, he steps out, looks he's at his palace, he kind of looks over his whole kingdom and his realm, and he says, look what I've built with my own hands and my own glory, and it's all about me, and no one's helped me. And God, out of judgment, turns him into a beast, and he grows these like feather-like hairs, and he walks on all fours, and he eats grass like a cow. And he says, how does he get back to his original state? He looks up into the heavens, and he sees that he's dependent upon God for everything. And God changes him back, and he, he becomes sane again. It's an example of ourselves. And so it says, he who sits in the heaven laughs. God's laughing in the heavens at the nations and what they're trying to do. He's, he's, he's laughing because what they're doing is ridiculous. They cannot topple him. They cannot take him out. It's a laugh of mockery. It's a laugh of contempt. You know, one of my favorite Old Testament stories is in the middle of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is mostly prophecy, but there is historical narrative in the middle of the book. And it's when Assyria is, is taking over Jerusalem. And they come and, they, and they, um, they surround Jerusalem. And Hezekiah is the king. And he is scared. He doesn't know what to do. And so he speaks to Isaiah, the prophet. And he says, you know, it may be that the Lord will hear the words of Rabshakeh, who's this basically an emissary from Assyria, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. And so he asked Isaiah, he says, therefore, would you pray? Would you pray for us? Would you pray for the remnant that's left here in Jerusalem or we're going to be wiped out? We need, we need God's help. 
And so the king in Assyria in that day was called Sennacherib. And God has this word through, the, through, through Isaiah, his prophet, to Sennacherib. He says this. I love it. He says to Sennacherib, this great king who's taking over Jerusalem, he says, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? That I plan from days of old what I now bring to pass? That you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. What he's saying is, King Sennacherib, everything that you've done, I have given, I've enabled you. I've given you the ability to do that. What I plan from of old, I bring to pass. And he says this to him, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because you've raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I'll turn you back from the way in which you came. He's saying, king of Assyria, you're this mighty superpower. You think you can do this on your own. I'm going to put a bit in your mouth like a horse and turn you back around to Assyria. That's God speaking to this enemy. And he does go back and he does get killed from someone in his own home. I love that because it's, it's God saying, he's laughing. He's saying, he's mocking this great king saying, you have no power. And anything you do, you're allowed by me to do. If you read the Bible, you see that picture all over the place and it leads us all the way to Jesus. And you see that the more the nations rage against God, the more God's sovereign power is on display. We see this specifically in the book of Acts, chapter 2, where Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by. You see what Peter's saying? Even when you thought you had it all sealed up and you killed the Messiah and you thought you'd knocked Christianity down, God determined it from long ago. He had planned it. And this was how he was going to save his people. Friends, no matter what the nations do, no matter what kings do, no matter what presidents do, Proverbs 21 is true. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He turns it wherever he will. So we see God's sovereignty, his rule and reign in the second section, but we also see his wrath. Look, then he will speak to them in his wrath, verse 5, and terrify them in his fury. See, God is angry. He's angry. He's furious when people are evil and reject him. Anger, friends, is a natural and good response to evil. Lately, I've been watching some videos on YouTube from 9-11. Um, not sure why. The algorithm just put them there, and I, and I happened to watch them. And it just brings back so many memories. I was in middle school at the time. And, um, and many of you young kids weren't around, don't know much about it, but it was a horrible day. Just, just, to, just to be watching it on TV, I can't imagine actually being there. 
But you see these pictures, horrible pictures of the planes flying into the buildings, of these huge explosions of these buildings on fire, of eventually the buildings falling, and then, then knowing how many people died. You first see that, and it's shock. It's like, how could this happen? You just don't know what to say. And then there's awe. You, you just see how huge this atrocity was. But pretty much every interview you see people who were down there or talking about it, it slowly turns to anger. You're angry that this happened. And you want it fixed. You want justice. You want to do something about it. That is natural, and that is a good response to evil. Came across this other story. You may have heard about it six or seven years ago. There was this family in Southern California. They had like 15 children that lived in the home. And they never let their kids outside. They didn't feed them. They were all malnourished. They chained them to beds. And one child, a 17-year-old girl, escaped. And she called the police, and they ended up coming in and saving the kids from this family. Worst of all, they were a Christian family. You read about things like that. You hear about things like that, and it just makes you sick to your stomach, and then it makes you mad, right? It's natural for us to feel anger when we see atrocities and evil people have neglect or little to no regard for human life. You see, friends, God is a God of righteous, white, hot anger in response to injustice. He's completely just. And the greatest injustice is to have disregard for God. To not give God his due. That is the greatest injustice. In fact, all other social, human-to-human injustices stem and flow from divine injustice. Disregarding God's lordship over us and the image bearers that he made. And here's the honest truth. We're all guilty of divine injustice. We don't give God his due. We don't give God what he deserves. And that is why we see the brokenness in this world. We're all guilty. And so what is the answer to God's anger and to this anger we see in the world? His answer is this. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That brings us to the third section of verses 7 through 9. He says, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We see that the Lord has anointed a king. He calls him his son and he says, today I have begotten you. He has established him, that's what that means. He has anointed him. As king. And we so we to understand this throughout Israel's history, David was that king who was received this covenant where David was the picture of God's rule and reign on earth. And every king after him in Israel was to point forward to the coming King Jesus. We see these words, Today I've begotten you, many times in the New Testament. One in place we see it is in Hebrews one. The beginning of Hebrews. The author says this, that in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, 
He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then he answers, and he says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So notice that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. That he is the king over all nations. That he is not letting the world just do whatever it wants without his authority. He is ruling and reigning right now. And that is over every nation. That is over our nation as well. We may be troubled by the direction of our country. We may be troubled at those who are in leadership of our country. But we cannot forget that Jesus is ruling over it all. You know, for many, it's, it's easy to start putting your hope in a politician than in God. Especially, this is an election year, big year. right? As the months unfold, the, the volume in the room is going to get loud. Emotions are going to get high. As that happens, Ask yourself, as I will be doing, are you placing more hope in an earthly president than in your eternal king? We live in a great country where we can be politically involved, where we have a voice. Although there is corruption, we don't live in a totally corrupt country. Our voice is heard. We can vote. And we should support the candidate that we think is best. But as we do that, hope in your reigning king. Jesus is not on the ballot, but he will return. And he will wonder and look at us and say, is this person hoping in me, ultimately, the ruling and reigning king? And don't mistake it, this is a political psalm. This is a psalm about politics, right? This is saying There is a a nation, there is a kingdom that will not end, is eternal, and it exists right now. And it's being ruled and reigned over by Jesus. That is our true allegiance. It's good to remember that we, like Daniel, in the book of Daniel, we're in exile too. We live in a Babylon, a sort of Babylon, where we're sojourners in this world. And our king is on the throne, and he is our highest authority and he rules and reigns over all things and that's the king we're told about look at verse 8 again i will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession jesus is going to return he's going to take everything that he owns to himself and that leads us to our final verses 10 through 12 and the warning we all must heed Look at the warning in verse 10. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. He's telling the kings, all the leaders of the world, be warned, be wise, uh, O rulers of the earth. What does he say? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. First, let me point out the patience of God in this verse. That he's, he's giving us time to answer, to to respond, to repent, to fall upon uh, Jesus as refuge. 
God is patient for warning us instead of striking us down. And that might sound to you a bit much. Why would God strike us down? What, 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 I don't get that. Why would he do that now? And it leads us also to that question many people ask, how could a good God let bad things happen to good people? Right? How can a good God let bad things happen to a good people? Many people have asked that question. And the answer is that there are no good people. That's where we have to start. Often it's our starting point that's wrong. You know, it's a myth that we use to make ourselves feel better. The better question is this. How can God let you continue breathing and living, knowing what you did, thought about, and and said just 24 hours ago? That's the better question. When you really think about yourself, your thoughts, your actions, your words, the only place you can go to is His mercy. And so he gives us time. He gives us time to respond. He gives us a warning. He gives the rulers of the earth time to repent. And what does he call us to do? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We're called to just fall down before him. Anybody in the Bible who who comes into the presence of God falls down on their face because of his holiness and and because of their own sin. And so we're called to rejoice with with trembling. That's a strange mixture, isn't it? Fear and trembling and joy. Where where do we ever see trembling and joy mixed together? Well, I'll, I'll argue that if you go to Bush Gardens, you'll see that. You'll see joy and trembling as you're going up Apollo's chariot and then down the first drop. I've got a, a ruling elder, Rick Bice, who's going to go skydiving, right, on his birthday. Uh, and, someone, and, and, and Paul Pruitt has gone skydiving. That's probably a place where you're going to see joy and trembling at the same time, right, Rick? Being in the presence of God is like that. It's, it's, it's scary because he's holy and you could die because of your sin being near him. But it's also joyful because it's the best place of protection and safety and love you could ever imagine. I quoted from Narnia last week. I'm going to quote again from Narnia. When Lucy or Susan, one of the children, is talking to the, the beaver family, the Mr. Beaver, and they say, the beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous being, meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that portrayal. Safety, but not safe. <laughs> not safe, but good. That's who God is. And that's what fearing God means. You come to him. You're drawn to him by fearing him. And you fear him more than any man. And when you do that, your sanity will return. And here's what the final thing we're called to do. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the son. What a strange phrase. What what does that mean? Well, this is not a kiss of affection. It's a kiss of submission. 
Right? Have you ever heard the phrase, kiss the ring? Right? Kiss the ring of the leader means you get down on your knees and you, you bring allegiance to that king. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. See, see, Jesus will be angry with everyone who rejects him. See, if you do not submit yourself to Jesus, you invite the father and the son's fury upon yourself if you reject him. That's what this psalm is saying. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel hope. It's in the last line. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. For he will be a refuge, brothers and sisters, to all who come to him. And we see that because he died for our sins. We see that because he climbed the cross to sit on his throne. We see that because Jesus endured the Father's anger for all who hope in him. This son, who we're called to kiss, we need to remember that this son has hands and feet who have nail scars in them. That's the son that we're to kiss. That Jesus transformed the worst thing, the cross, into the best thing, our salvation. That's what we celebrate on Good Friday. That's why we call it Good Friday. It was the worst Friday for Jesus, but the best one for us. There's this great scene in, in, in the Gospels where you know, Jesus is betrayed and he's with his followers and they come, this, this band of, of people come to the mob really to take him into custody. And one of his disciples who was with Jesus says he stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Then listen to what he says. He said, do you think I can't appeal to my father and at once he would send me 12 legions of angels? But he says, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? He came to die, friends. He had all the power in the world not to die, but he chose to die so that we might be saved. For if you put your trust in him, his righteousness becomes yours. Brothers and sisters, Jesus willingly chose the cross over the crown in order to save us from ourselves. But let us never forget that Jesus is returning one day, not to submit humbly to creation like he did when he first came, but to have all creation submit humbly to him when he returns. Alistair Begg says, the only reason to flee from his justifiable anger is to find refuge in his amazing grace. So the question for you this morning is, have you found refuge in Jesus? Are you looking to him for safety? And if so, then Jesus wants to commune with you and call you his friends and invite you to the king's table. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.